Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the host here, and thanks for joining us. Alright, so my guest this week is Hannah Otto, who just absolutely demolished the fastest known time for climbing up the road and then descending the whole enchilada trail in Moab, covering the 55 plus miles and over 8,000 feet of gain in well under six hours. And so we sat down to chat about it, including what inspired her to go for the FKT in the first place, how she prepared for the effort, both in terms of training, nutrition, bike setup, other gear, and all the rest, how the day went, including some mishaps that she powered through, and a whole lot more. We also chat about her 2022 season more broadly, including the decision to race as a privateer after many years on factory teams, and what she's got in store for 2023. It's a cool episode about a very impressive effort on Hannah's part, but before we get into it, I just want to take a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits that come with it, including a whole bunch of new member deals that we've just rolled out, including stuff like apparel from 7Mesh, protection from 7iDip, and as always, some good things like the wheels from We Are One, and a whole lot more. So we got a link in the show notes, check out the member deals and all the other good stuff you get with membership. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Hannah Otto. Well, Hannah, great to have you on. Thanks for sitting down to chat today. How are you today and where are you today? I'm good. I am in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is my home, um, and I've just started my off-season. Yeah. So your 2022 season's been a pretty busy one. We'll get into that here in a bit. But kind of the first thing off the top is that you've just set the FKT on the whole enchilada, including the pedal up to the top. And so just wanted to first say congrats on that and chat a bit about that effort and what all went into it. So I guess to start, just what inspired you to make the attempt and how long has this been in the works? Yeah, this has been something I've thought about for a couple years now. Um, I first rode the whole enchilada, gosh, maybe four or five years ago. And just something about the trail made me absolutely fall in love. I was just so amazed at the landscape and all of the varying terrain and how in such a relatively short period of time, you can encounter so many different types of terrain from high aspen groves to desert terrain to the slick rock. It just completely stole my heart. And so very quickly, that trail just became a big love of mine. And then not but about a year later, I heard of someone riding to the top of it. And at the time, I thought, well, that just feels impossible. But the further along I got in my career, the more I started to think about it and think, actually, I think I could do that really, really well. Um, and so for me, it was it this journey to doing this FKT was a journey of me loving the trail and also progression within the sport of something going from feeling impossible to actually feeling like maybe I could do this the best yet. Yeah, that's cool. And like you said, I think that is sort of the most special thing about that 
trail is just how much it changes over the course of the trail and how many different types of terrain and landscape you move through as you descend in elevation over this this big range. And so to for people who maybe aren't super familiar, can you just give us a little bit of a rundown on kind of a quick version of what the trail's like and where it's at and all that stuff? Absolutely. The whole enchilada trail is in Moab, Utah. Um, and I did the climb up the road and the fire road and then the descent down the trail. Uh, most people will actually shuttle this descent. So it takes about an hour from town in a vehicle to drive up to the top of this trail and then to descend down. So my whole ride, the climb up and down was just a hair over 55 miles. It was 30 miles of climbing and then 25 of descending. Um, it started at 4,000 feet above sea level and topped out at just over 11,000 feet above sea level. So with that climb and then some undulations coming down, it comes out to just over 8,000 feet of climbing on the day. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty healthy ride. And yeah. <laughs> I've only ever shuttled it myself. So yeah, it's a it's a significant undertaking. But kind of like we touched on a little bit too, one of the things that's just so cool about it is that you start out in this sort of smoother, faster, flowier, high alpine single track that's just sort of sweeping and you've got some really nice expansive views over the whole valley. And then as it gets down lower, it turns quite a lot rockier and more technical and rougher. And then both sort of just big chunky stuff and some slick rock slabs. And there's just a lot of variety to it. Yeah. When you get to the top, it's you just peek out just over tree line. So you get this incredible view. And then immediately you dip, dip down into aspen groves. The riding would be almost loamy. This It's at such high elevation that it's usually very cold. When I did it, it was extremely muddy, actually had ice over the roots. Um, you're going through trees, aspen groves, and then as you descend down, all of a sudden you enter more of desert, desolate terrain. You're dealing with sand, you're dealing with really sharp rocks. Um, and then as you continue going down, you eventually hit slick rock and you actually end at the Colorado River. So to me, Mountain biking is all about overcoming challenge, adventure, and adaptation. It's adapting to whatever's thrown your way. Because when you're out in the middle of the mountains, just you and your bike, you have to get yourself through it. No matter what it is, you have to overcome it. And the amount of times I've ridden this trail, I've seen so many people have various things that they need to overcome, mechanicals, injuries, crashes, just the difficult terrain, it just lends itself to these challenges. And so I think that's another reason I really fell in love with this trail is it just encompasses that sense of adventure and challenge and the need to be able to be flexible enough to constantly adapt your riding style. Yeah, there's a lot to it. And so as far as the FKT attempt goes, though, so as you've, I think, said very nicely, you have this kind of love affair with the trail and thought that you could you could go for it. Had you even ridden the climb prior to attempting the FKT or was that your first go at pedaling up it at all? That was my first go at pedaling up the climb. Um, it is a beast. And so 
I mean, honestly, to do it at all, you know, my so my fastest known time is five hours, 50 minutes and 38 seconds. And that's as fast as I can go. So you can imagine that if I did a scouting day, it would be a massive day. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've driven the climb many times in shoveling it, but that was my first go at the actual climb. And I mean, I've raced my bike all over the world. I've done all kinds of things. I've raced Leadville multiple times. And let me tell you, this climb is really hard. It was way harder than I even thought it would be. And I was pretty nervous going into it. So that should say a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anytime you're doing a, what, roughly 7,000 foot climb in one shot, that's, that's pretty burly. Yeah. It is my longest climb on Strava. It is 7,000 feet with no reprieve. Um, and the climb itself took me just about three and a half hours. So it's it's a hard mental effort, too, of just really getting in that zone and not letting up. Yeah, I bet. And so, yeah, I mean, like I said, having not actually done the climb before and kind of all that, not having necessarily the clearest picture of what it would entail i mean how confident did you feel going in that you really could set the fkt which you did by nearly an hour it was not close gosh it just felt like i had so many different scenarios that could play out you know when i first set this goal i felt pretty confident i could break seven hours that that made sense to me and then as I started practicing the descent more and more and realizing kind of how quick I was moving through the descent, I thought, you know, I, I could probably get close to six and a half. And as I started just in the couple of days, actually, before the FKT, I started calculating out how long I thought the climb would take and about what power I would be holding to the top of that climb. And I thought, you know, if everything goes perfectly, I might be able to break six hours. But to me, that was almost an outlandish goal. I was really nervous to even say it out loud because that was like, everything has to go perfect. And it went darn close to perfect, but it got really muddy at the top of the climb. And it got really, really hard. And between that mud and the fatigue and everything else, as I was getting close to the top of the climb, it was starting to take longer and longer. And I think I had miscalculated a little bit how long that climb would take. And I was thinking I was going to summit around three hours and then have just under three hours to descend it. But I summited around three and a half hours. And at that point, I kind of threw the six hour breaking six hour goal out the window. I thought, well, maybe I can still do six and a half. And I actually clicked my stages dash, my cycling computer to just the distance page. I didn't even want to know the time anymore because it was overwhelming me. And I didn't look at the time again until 10 miles to go. And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, it's still on the table. Um, and then it was just a race to the finish. So it was a surprise to me as well. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of part of what I was wanting to get at is that just, I think, it's pretty hard to forecast exactly how something, how long something like that's going to take. And uh, just kind of having that idea of, you know, how feasible is this really? And sussing that out is not 
the easiest thing to do necessarily. So let's talk a little bit more just about what all you did as far as kind of planning for this goes. I mean, of course, you've been doing a ton of racing over the summer, training, et cetera, kind of that you presumably had the fitness portion of things down pretty well. But just as far as the logistics of doing this attempt and handling nutrition on it and whatever you had in place for a support crew and all the rest, take us through all that. Yeah. So this was fully unsupported. Um, I had a camera crew out there to document it. So I understand that for the terms of some FKT purists, that's, you know, uh, it's up for debate. But my camera crew did not help me in any way. They didn't even speak to me. They didn't say go. None of that. It was fully, most of the time, I didn't even see him. I just saw the footage after. So that meant I had to carry all of my stuff. Um, and like you said, the fitness portion, I pretty much counted on my whole race season to take care of. So most of the planning and logistics was on how am I actually going to do this thing? How am I going to plan it out? So first was the route. I wanted to standardize the route. And something that was really important to me was that it was replicable and it was fair. So anyone who wanted to do it could do it safely and the same every time. So that meant I didn't want any stoplights in it. I didn't want any heavy traffic areas. So that's why I picked the route that I did on quieter roads. And that's why I have it at, I have it start at the last major turn out of town. Um, and then I have it end right when you hit the Colorado River, so right before the bike path, so that no one's trying to sprint through people on the bike path or have anything dangerous like that. So that's why I picked this very specific route, and that was sort of step number one. Um, after that, it really became a matter of planning how I would do this unsupported. It was a lot of stuff to carry, and there are a lot of unknowns out there. So when I topped out at the top of Burrow Pass at 11,000 feet, it was super muddy and it was probably 35 degrees. But at the bottom, when I ended at the Colorado River, it was over 80 degrees. So there was a huge temperature swing out there. So for pure safety standpoint, I felt like it was essential that I carry a rain jacket. I also had to carry a good amount of fluids, but that was an interesting concept as well because the climb came first. And so I would be carrying the most amount of stuff during the steepest, most difficult part where potentially that weight weighing you down mattered the most. And so it was a really delicate balance of what's the least amount I can carry while still being safe? Because that was another really important thing to me in this is, like I said, I've seen a lot of people get into some very difficult situations out on that trail. And being someone trying to set the fastest now in time, trying to standardize their route, I also wanted to set an example of how to do it properly and safely. A big piece of that puzzle too is the bike setup, because of course you're doing this huge climb. You're, I'm sure trying to keep the bike light and efficient, but then kind of how did you do much of a deviation from your normal XC race setup as far as the bike goes for this? Or did you make some tweaks to kind of deal with the, rougher, rockier descent and try to minimize chances of mechanical or I think particularly a flat would be the thing I'd be concerned about on pretty light XC tires and that kind of stuff. So 
How did you approach that portion of it? Absolutely. I think that's another really exciting thing about this trail and this attempt in particular is it just feels like the best well-rounded setup is what's going to excel because on the climb, yeah, you want to be as light as possible, but on the descent being too light can cost you majorly with a mechanical, or you'll just plain be slow because you're going to have to pick out your lines so carefully and you're going to be beat up so badly that you're not going to be flying down the trail. So I rode my pivot Mach 4 SL Um, And then the main changes that I made for this trail was I usually run a hundred millimeter fork. And for this, I put on the Fox 34 with 120 millimeters. So I added a little bit of cushion in the front. And then I rode a Kenda 2.4 SCT booster tire, um, which I felt like was really perfect for this trail. It It is an XC tire, but I didn't have any flats. So I have really great things to say about it, especially after this. Um, and I did run a Kush core in the rear for some of those hard impacts because especially on this trail, it's so long that it's really hard to remember every single line that you have all the time. And there's a lot of things where on one side it's a roll and on the other side it's a really big drop and you're bound to make a mistake at some point and have an oh shoot moment where you're just throwing your bike over the side and you just need a little bit of forgiveness on the landing. So that that was my way of obtaining that. That sounds about like what I probably would have guessed, you know, not too far off from standard XC race bike, but with just beefed up just a little bit in a few spots, tires, mm-hmm. yeah. notably. So, I mean, you've already said that things went pretty nearly perfectly with possible exception of a bit of mud up top and whatnot that you've touched on. But let's take us through the day a little bit more detail. So, I guess, starting with the climb, since that's where things kicked off. Just take us through how things went from your perspective and sort of if there are any particular moments that stood out as being either positive or negative ones where you suddenly felt like things were going well or issues that arose or whatever it might be that stands out. Yeah. So starting out on the day, I started just as the sun was cresting over the mountain. So it was just starting at sunrise. And as I started out, I immediately knew it was going to be a good day. I felt so good. I had my, you know, because in a race, you're normally pacing off of other people. So for me, it was a unique experience, especially in a three hour, three and a half hour climb. You have to pace really smart. So I had a pacing plan based on my power meter. Um, and I was at the upper end of all of those numbers. I was getting really excited, feeling really good. But I about maybe 30 minutes in, I started having a really big headwind. And I was noticing that while my power numbers were really high, my times in the checkpoints I had in my mind weren't quite reflecting that. So I immediately had sort of this apprehension. And, you know, just as a human being, you have these doubts of, gosh, maybe today wasn't the day. Maybe I should have attempted it yesterday or tomorrow. And you have to push those things out because you can so quickly go into the spiral. And so that was the first thing I had to push through was just knowing that I have this headwind and it was costing me a little bit of time. Um, As the 
the road started to kick up, I started to acknowledge how difficult this climb was going to be, really focus on my nutrition. I felt like the middle part of the climb, I felt really strong. The headwind, um, I'd gotten out of the headwind through some turns and it was really kicking up. I knew that the steepness was going to play in my favor. I was feeling really good. Um, and then I turned on to the fire road which is about eight miles to the top. And that's where I had sort of miscalculated my time. I thought, okay, I'm almost at the top based on my time because I thought three hours, you know, about 30 minutes out. And as the time was ticking down, I was watching the mileage not tick down. That's when I started to really get a little flustered because I'm thinking, well, maybe it flattens out. Maybe it goes downhill. Like, how am I going to make up this time? And I just never did. In fact, it got steeper and it got harder and it got muddier. And I finally hit the summit just totally exhausted. You know, if you've ever, if anyone's ever done it, it is so steep at the top because even the shuttle, you have to ride the last two miles and it's a brutal two miles. Most people have to walk it. And so to be at that point after having ridden that far, I was I was totally exhausted, which I do remember having the very clear thought of, you know, those emotions of, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. How am I going to make it down? And then thinking the whole point in this is to push your limits. So thank goodness you reached them. Um, So I started going down. It was a little icy as I went down Burrow. And then probably the most hilarious uh, I don't know what to call it, mishap of the day occurred when I came around a corner and there was a herd of cows walking down the single track trail. And that's not uncommon for up there. And I had actually, funnily enough, I'd actually talked about it prior to the FKT of can you approach a cow? What's kind of the situation there? <laughs> you know, so I get up really close to it and I'm yelling like, go, go, you know, whatever, trying to get it. And all the cows just turn around and look back at me and stop. I'm like, oh, so they're really not, you know, I'm inches off of this cow trying to get it to go. And they were just absolutely not going to move. I don't think they could because it was so steep um, on both sides of the single track trail. They had no way to get off. So I had to actually march behind these cows for probably a solid five minutes, I was just walking as a part of their herd on the trail. And this is when I'm really going crazy, just thinking, is this really how this is going to go today? Um, but eventually they got off. I was able to laugh it off and, and get down burrow, get on to hazard. And I think hazard is really when things started to click for me. I had left all of those other things behind. I wasn't even looking at the time anymore. I was just focused on riding every section of the trail the best that I could ride that section. And I feel like I really just hit the flow state for me. It felt like all the times pre-riding came to mind. Um, You know, I went from hazard, you go UPS, LPS, Porcupine Rim, and throughout, or and Coco Pelly in there too, sorry. Um, But I just felt like I had all these markers on the trail that I had thought of and I was remembering them all. You know, there's, you go to the left after 
the tree with the weird branch and then you go to the right after the rock with the crack and I just really found a flow and I was actually able to ride things on that trail that I had never in that attempt that I had never cleanly ridden in practice. So it was a pretty thrilling experience. And with 10 miles to go, I remember finally gaining the courage within myself to look at the time again. And I thought, well, 10 miles per hour, if I ha- if I'm at less than five hours, I could still maybe go under six, if I dare even dream that. And I clicked my computer and it said 455. And so I knew that the possibility was there. And I just, those last 10 miles were really exciting for me trying to race the clock. Yeah, I can imagine, especially having not looked at the time for so long at that point, you're, you just have no idea. Over a shorter span, you can maybe kind of have your internal clock keep track of it a little bit more clearly. I think it's just so hard on that trail because there's some sections like Coco Pelli where you're just bombing and you're going so fast and the miles are ticking down so quickly and the time somewhat slowly. But when you're riding something like UPS, there are some miles where you're just like, am I even going downhill? Because you're moving so slowly because you're being so intentional and the trail is so tight and it's, it's downhill, but it's a lot of type of trails where you're lifting up your front wheel and you're doing these really full body sort of exercises that it's the hardest. Well, it's one of the most exhausting downhill trails you'll ever ride. uh, In my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just because it's so long. Exactly. It's, it's relentless. And like you said, there is a ton of variation in how fast you're able to go between the different mm-hmm. sections. It's, it's not at all consistent in that regard. So kind of you saw that 455 and went, okay, I can break six now. And what kind of was your thought process at that point? Because I can sort of imagine it on one hand feeling like something of a relief and very exciting. On the other hand, at that point, you've got what is in a lot of ways the most technical part of the trail left. And so you're, I can imagine too, being like, man, I'm on pace to like clearly on pace to break the FKT could potentially break six hours. What was the balance between trying to be like, I want to push for six versus if I just take it easy, make sure I don't crash, don't flat, whatever, I've definitely got the FKT down. How did you think about that balance? I think my mindset on the day was really that smooth is fast. You know, the least amount of mistakes that you make on that trail is going to be the fastest way to ride it. Um, And mistakes being crashes, it's taking the wrong line and having to stop and readjust, it's mechanicals, it's all of those things. And, you know, I, I had gotten back on pace based on that mindset of I'm going to ride every little obstacle the smoothest possible. And so when I then saw that the possibility was there, it was actually almost a pulling on the reins in my mind of like, okay, you can be excited, but you've gotten here following this mindset. 
So you have to stay calm. You have to stay within yourself because you're right. I think that those final 10 miles are some of the most technical and potentially the most um, likely to have a mechanical as well. And so I was have I was being really cautious with my equipment. And also, you know, there are some sections on Porcupine Rim that they're hard and they're dangerous as well. And I had promised myself actually coming in to the FKT that if I hit some of those sections and I was just obliterated, that I wasn't going to attempt them, that my safety was worth more than that. And also, in all reality, it would be faster to run something than it would be to try it, crash, pick up the pieces, et cetera. And so there were a couple of those that I definitely held to. And there were some things that I had to run, which I think is important for people to know as well, is you don't have to ride every single feature on this trail in order to be competitive for this FKT. But also, I think because I had ridden it smoothly and within myself, all of the things that I planned on riding and could ride I never had to pull back and say, oh, I'm just too exhausted. In fact, there were a lot of sections that I hit that I went into thinking, am I going to ride this or not? When I saw it, it was like, oh my gosh, this is looks easier than I remember. And so I think on this trail, especially, there's a big reward for staying within yourself, staying calm. And I think nutrition is another thing that we can attribute that to because if you're bonked on this trail, forget about it. It's it's going to feel impossible and it is hard to eat when you're going downhill for 25 miles. So picking those places and being really intentional about knowing that maybe slowing up even a little bit to consume something was ultimately going to make me faster in the end. Tell us more about that. Kind of what was your plan for nutrition and eating on especially on the downhill portion like you said because it's hard to find a time and space to do that yeah um so on the climb it was it was pretty standard my goal was 80 grams of carbohydrates an hour so i was consuming something approximately every 20 minutes was my goal and then i also had drink mix um and so that, I mean, it was pretty much just staying true to the schedule on the climb, but on the descent, I knew it was going to get a little more messy. I wasn't going to be exactly on the 20 minute mark. Okay. I'm reaching back to my back pocket. Um, and so I really, you know, I had pre-ridden several times, so I, I did know the places where I could. Um, but really it came down to, there's a few climbs on it. You know, notably, there's like the hazard climb, um, the climb up hazard, and there's a couple others if you become familiar with the trail. And I basically just made it a rule anytime on the downhill you're pointed uphill, it's for you to eat. And so, even though those climbs are still technical and difficult, that was really a cue in my mind because you can get really lost too in the descent just of you're focused, you're thinking about this and that, and you're not even thinking about food until it's too late. So I took those uphills as my cue of, have you eaten? Have you drank? It's time to do that. Whether or not I wanted it, whether or not I had, you know, just done it a couple minutes ago, because maybe you're eating on one climb, 10 minutes later, you're eating again on another climb. It seems overkill, but then it might be, 30, 45 minutes till you can take your hands off the bar again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and is one of the things that I'm 
just not good at as a rider. I mean, I'm not racing much anymore, but just doing big all day rides and stuff. I am generally terrible about making myself eat enough and it's something that I need to work on. And that's some good advice for, for making it happen. Yeah. It can be really hard to make yourself really want to eat even when it's what your body needs, but you're just in the thick of it and not really thinking about it and often don't feel very hungry. And so it's so hard because I don't think, I don't really think anyone is ever going hard in exercise and thinking, you know, I'm really hungry. I'd love to eat something. I'd love a little snack. Like it's just, it's not something we desire. And so when I think of nutrition on the bike, I always say like, it's an intellectual decision. Like eating is intellectual on the bike because if I just left it up to emotion, I would never do it. And so that's why I'm very firm with myself. Um, before and during of setting a plan and saying, this is what I'm going to do. And if my brain or my stomach says partway through, you know, maybe we could change that a little bit. I think me not exhausted is smarter than me when I am exhausted. And so that's when I really have to hold firm to that plan. Yep. That resonates a lot. (laughs) Well, Anything else that you want to touch on with the FKT before we kind of pull back a little bit and chat about your 2022 season more broadly? I mean, I guess the only other thing I'd like to add is just that I really encourage people to go out and try it themselves, whether or not, you know, if you think you can set the FKT and beat my time, especially like, let's set the bar higher, let's keep going. Um, But even if you're looking at this thinking, oh my gosh, I'll never break that or maybe you can't even make the whole route. For me, so much of this story is about my journey to being able to do it at all and to marking off those incremental improvements. And so it would just make me so happy um, to know that whether it's this trail or another trail, that this inspires someone to go out and break a trail into chunks, try one section, then another section, and then piecing them together and just going through that process of improving yourself. And I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing about fastest known times is sure, maybe for the very top tier, you're trying to have the fastest ever, but maybe it's your fastest known time, the fastest you've ever done the trail. And that's a blast. And that's so much fun to go out and try and, because that's something I just love about mountain biking is it's limitless. There's always something to improve on. There's always a way that you can gain more in time. I mean, heck, I just set the fastest known time by a significant margin. I'm already looking at it saying, well, I could have done this and I could have done that. I mean, we've talked about some of the elements that that I know held my time up a little bit. And so there's always ways to improve. And I just really encourage everyone to go out there and tackle, whether it be the whole enchilada or their own, you know, favorite trail, because it's really fun. I like that. So yeah, like I said, just sort of to step back a little bit more and talk about the rest of your 2022. I mean, I think one of the the big storylines through it is that you made the decision to race as a privateer this year and wrote a bit about this, just kind of thinking through what motivated you to do it and all the rest. But 
take us through that here, kind of what led to that decision and why were you so excited to make that change? Yeah, I'm thrilled with just the opportunity with the experience, you know, I, I, I will be privateer again in 2023. Um, it was, you know, it was just, it was everything I hoped that it would be. Um, and, you know, so I had been on a factory team for nine years. So I'd gone through the whole team environment and there's certainly some positives, you know, I don't want to sit here and badmouth teams because it's not that it's just, I really felt like after all of those years and all of that time, I had a really great perspective of my goals and what I wanted and where in some cases teams did fall short of, you know, my personal perfect path. And so I just had this idea of how I could create an environment that I felt like I could thrive in. And by me thriving, I do mean results, but I also just mean the joy and being able to connect with the community at the level that I wanted to. And so that I felt like was a way that, you know, in teams, I do think that there's, you know, on one hand, it's a positive of there is really a gatekeeper to the athletes. Um, whether that's the manager or just the team environment in general. But I really wanted to push a little bit further into the community and into the direct sponsor relationships myself. And so that was something that I was um, really targeting as a privateer. And I definitely feel like I got, you know, in the past, a lot of sponsors have just been names on a jersey that I was incredibly thankful for because I understood the way that they that brand was helping um, and supporting. But for me now, they're people that I've talked to and had dinner with, and I know about their families and their lives. And it's really allowed me, I feel like, to work with brands that I connect to as human beings and people. And um to me, that's just been beautiful because, I mean, this is my life. This is what I'm spending every hour of every day pursuing. That's how professional athletics are. And so I want to be able to share it with people that I feel like have that same vision. And so in the same way, I feel like it's really allowed me to use my time the way that I feel is valuable in terms of you know, spending a lot more time at the venues and at the finish lines and connecting with the general population better and taking my friends and my husband has gotten to come to a lot of the races. And that's, of course, and wonderful as well. And then, um, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that definitely a factor in me wanting to become a privateer was I had a really big schedule that I wanted to do, um, which has definitely been a storyline for my year this year of balancing the Lifetime Grand Prix, as well as the World Cups, Pro XCTs, and then of course, even a project like the whole enchilada FKT. So I've really diversified a lot. And um, being a privateer is actually what enabled me to do that this year because I outlined my schedule myself, surrounded me with people who were also excited about it, and then was able to just go on this crazy adventure all over the world tackling these races. Yeah, I, I like that. And early in that 
you sort of mentioned just the ways in which being on a factory team felt like it was holding you back in terms of the goals that you were hoping to set for yourself was, do you mean that in terms of being able to do this extremely ambitious schedule that you've had, or was there more to it than that? Yeah. Again, I want to be really careful because I think that factory teams are amazing. And I think like all throughout my career, when I was on the factory team, it's where I was meant to be, you know, someone actually asked me like, well, if you're so happy with your privateer program now, do you wish you had done it earlier? And it was a fantastic question, but the answer is I wasn't ready for it earlier. I think that there's a lot of knowing yourself that comes with, uh, in, or, in order to be a privateer, you really have to know yourself and your goals. And there's a whole business side that comes to it as well. So I would say I just wasn't ready for it before. But, you know, I think it's not so much that teams were holding me back as much as when you're a team, it's the interests of everyone. And that's wonderful. But I not only would watch myself sometimes, but not everyone can be happy all the time. In fact, it's often a compromise. And so, you know, I, not just myself, but my teammates, you know, we would all compromise for each other constantly. And that's fantastic. That's life. Um, but I think there's something beautiful also in being able to pursue your own goals just in a straight path. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it's just interesting to me because I've spoken to a number of folks on here who've made the leap from going to being a privateer from factory teams with, you know, kind of mixed results. And I think it just goes to show that there's no one right path for everybody. Absolutely. And that's not something like I will say I absolutely love being a privateer. I love doing it this season. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, though. Like, it's not for everybody. And I think that there's different personality types that do better with it than others. And I think that um, it really depends the team that you have around you. And I, I don't just mean sponsors. I mean mechanics and everything else. What big overarching quote unquote village do you have? Because it does take a village. Even as one person, it takes a huge village. Right. For sure. And so, I mean, you've spoken about the ways in which being a privateer worked out well for you. And having mentioned that you're going forward again next year, obviously some things are working. Were there any things about it that were particularly difficult or surprisingly difficult or did it all kind of go fairly smoothly or at least as expected? You know, I, for me, I think it went fairly smoothly as expected or even better than expected. Um, that said, it's a constant learning opportunity and that's part of what I love about the sport. I mean, we talked about that even on the trails, like I love the way that mountain biking constantly forces you to adapt the same way you know, as a professional athlete, this is how I make a living. And so there's a business side of it as well. And so you constantly have to learn and adapt to that as well. And so, you know, there's some things that I think I can do even better. Um, but 
overall, to me, it's really just about tweaking and growing and and knowing how far I I guess I can expand because that that's kind of the biggest line, I think, with being a privateer is since it is you, you constantly have to take a small step and say, OK, can I still handle all of these things happening? Great. It's going well. Take another small step, another small step. And I think this year was a lot of little tiny steps, seeing how far I could push myself. And now going into next year, I already have all of that data where I'm starting in a new position. Right. I'm sure there's some ways in which going into your second season as a privateer feels easier, just having those things in place and having a little bit better handle on the ropes of what all it takes to do it. Because there's just a lot of organization in terms of logistics and travel and so on and so forth that a factory team carries a lot of load on and that you've had to take on yourself by making that leap to racing as a privateer. Um, but sort of along those lines... What can you tell us at this point about what your 2023 plans look like beyond that you're going to be doing the privateer program again? Any particular goals or plans that you want to share at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that my 2023 season, my goal is for it to look um, in terms of schedule similar to 2022. You know, I still have really big Olympic dreams. And so I'll still be pursuing the World Cups as a big priority of mine, but I love racing my bikes in all different terrains and elements and ways. And so, you know, I, I loved the Grand Prix this year. It was super fun. So, um, they haven't announced exactly what that'll look like next year. So I think we should find out about that in the next couple of weeks, but I would love to be a part of that again. And yeah, I think that, um, I just, I really love the variety. It's been super fun for me. And I think in many ways, it actually helps me to have that sort of variety because it keeps things fresh and it takes at least emotionally some of that pressure off that can sometimes weigh you down. And so it's, for me, I think fun is always the way to race the fastest. I like that last line. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense that just not doing the same thing year over year and having some variety to it helps keep it exciting and stop it from feeling like quite as much of a grind in some ways. And so that totally checks out. It's so interesting because I think in cycling in general, every race is vastly different. You know, whether it's the same course or not, like the elements are different, the train, like even if it's the same course, the dirt is different, right? Like it's just, it's not like something like swimming or track and field where the goal is to have it stay similar. It just by the nature of the sport changes and the way the race plays out changes. Like all these things are changing, yet we want the results to stay the same. You win one year and you show up the next year and you're like, well, gee, why didn't I win this year? Well, because it wasn't the same race. And so I think sometimes allowing for that obvious variety just allows you to remember that things are going to ebb and flow and wherever you're at, you're going to reach that peak again. It just, it doesn't have to be exactly the same year over year. That's a really good way of looking at it. And for sure, because like you said, mountain biking just isn't consistent. Things change, trails change, 
even nominally the same trails can be just wildly different day to day even so i like that perspective a lot this has been a ton of fun hannah i appreciate you coming on any final thoughts or parting words you want to share with us before we let you get back to it I guess just, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I guess the one thing that I would also add about 2023 is I'll still be with my co-title sponsors, Pivot Cycles and DT Swiss. So just wanted to shout them out and say thank you for being on again for another year. Right on. Well, thanks again for chatting and congrats on the FKT and just what's been a pretty great 2022 season in general and looking forward to following along for next year. So this has been great really appreciate you coming on thank you thanks for having me all right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and as always we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review of the show in apple podcasts to help keep it going and growing i also want to say thanks to hannah for the conversation thanks to taylor ahern for producing the episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us at blister please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we'll talk to you again next week bye everybody